Our psalm of the day is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in 2 Chronicles, chapters 17 and 19. Listen carefully to God's Word. Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments, and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat. And he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord, and furthermore he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. In the third year of his reign... He sent his officials, Ben-Hail, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathaniel, and, and, and Micah, to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them the Levites, Shemai, Nathaniel, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemarth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah. And with these Levites, the priests of Elishama and Jehoram. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver for tribute, and the Arabians also brought him 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. And Jehoshaphat grew steadily greater. He built in Judah fortresses and store cities and had large supplies in the cities of Judah. He had soldiers, mighty men of valor in Jerusalem. This was the muster of them by fathers' houses. Of Judah, the commanders of thousands, Adna, the commander with 300,000 mighty men of valor. And next to him, Jehananan, the commander with 280,000. And next to him, Amsiah, the son of Zikri, a volunteer for the service of the Lord with 200,000 mighty men of valor. Of Benjamin, Eliada, a mighty man of valor with 200,000 men armed with bow and shield. And next to him, Jehazabad, with 180,000 armed for war. These were in the service of the king, besides those whom the king had placed in the fortified cities throughout all Judah. And moving to chapter 19. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, The seer went out to meet him and said to Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you. 
For you destroyed the Asheroth out of the land, and you have set your heart to seek God. Jehoshaphat lived at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. Moreover, in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of the families of Israel to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases. They had their seat at Jerusalem, and he charged them, Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord, in faithfulness, and with your whole heart, Whenever a case comes to you from your brothers who live in their cities concerning bloodshed, law or commandment, statutes or rules, then you shall warn them, and they may not incur guilt before the Lord, and wrath may not come upon, may not come upon you and your brothers. Thus you shall do, and you will not incur guilt. And behold, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of the Lord, and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the governor of the house of Judah, in all the king's matters and the Levites will serve you as officers. Deal courageously, and may the Lord be with the upright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. It is a gift to us, and through it, you reveal yourself to us in your ways and your works. And Lord, in this great story of Jehoshaphat, a reforming king in Judah, we ask that you would teach us and instruct us and lead us in the way. We ask you to speak, for your servants are listening. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Several years ago, J.I. Packer, the famed theologian, was giving an interview at Christianity Today, and he was asked about the sources of his own theological uh, maturation. And during the course of the interview, he was also asked about novelists that he enjoyed and liked. And one of the novelists that was mentioned was a British man by the name of Graham Greene. I was not familiar with Graham Greene at that point, but because J.I. Packer found him so provocative and interesting, I quickly went out and bought the first novel that Amazon brought up. It was called The Power and the Glory. I learned some interesting things about Green. He was actually a British spy uh, during World War II. Fascinating character was uh, a man who was a Roman Catholic uh, convert. He was a sincere Christian, uh, wonderful in many ways, but also had a very complicated life. And he worked out many of his own problems and issues through his novels. But in The Power and the Glory, he tells uh, of the main character, who is a Mexican priest, who's living in a state that has denied officially uh, the Christian religion. And they're attempting to remove it and to move towards a completely secular power. And so many of the priests had been killed or imprisoned, or many of the priests had capitulated and just simply given in to the power of the state. And so here we have this one Mexican priest who is a very much a compromised man. And as you step into the novel, you feel his compromise. He is slothful and lazy. His life is a mess. He actually falls in love with a woman and has a baby, a child, out of wedlock. And he attempts to hide this, but he can't. It becomes public. And then in the midst of his shame, he becomes a raging alcoholic for years and years and years. And so he 
is a very compromised, complicated figure uh, filled with all kinds of failure. And the way Green paints the picture, you find yourself disapproving of this priest and the exercise of his duty. But then, towards the end of the book, the priest becomes the hero. This man who you found yourself not liking, this man that you found yourself critiquing, suddenly you find yourself with enormous compassion for him. And without ruining the book for you, because you should take up and read this one, it's uh, really wonderful, he is the one faithful one who then loses his life because of the exercise of his calling from God. And that he, you find this morally complicated situation where this man with so many faults that for hundreds of pages you've grown to disdain, and then on the very last pages of the book you find yourself enamored with him. It's very morally complicated space, and Green invites you into that. And friends, as we read through Second Chronicles, you are invited into that very same complicated space where there are failures and there is faithfulness. Where there is grace and there is greed, where there is awakening and there is apostasy, that through these kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, and as we read about the northern kingdom of Israel in the background, we are seeing all kinds of disturbing realities, but also that there is an awakening grace of God falling on Judah, doing something new in these series of four reforming kings, and these four reforming kings are far from perfect, that there's all kinds of failures surrounding them. And for some people, this is extremely disturbing. And particularly for those who hold on to romantic visions of times of reformation and renewal. And for something to be reforming and renewing, everything must be pure and must be right. But friends, there's great encouragement in the midst of all the brokenness that we see inside of these chapters and inside of the story that we even look at today, that the awakening and renewing work of God happens in real time. It happens with real human beings who have their failures and their shortcomings, who completely mess it up, but that the grace of God works over them, that the grace of God works against them, that the grace of God goes beyond them. And that is what is critical for us to see in the midst of reading about King Jehoshaphat, that God loves his world and he redeems it. That yes, this is a world full of faithfulness and also failure, obedience and also compromise, and God overrides all of that to accomplish his good purposes. And so this morning, as we consider the awakening work of God, this renewing and reforming work of God, we are looking at King Jehoshaphat in his failures and also in his faithfulness, and hold that moral complication together and learn from every piece of it. And briefly this morning, there are four things that we'll see about this reforming and renewing work across these four chapters, really tracing chapter 17 to chapter 21 this morning. The first piece of this is that in awakening, it's important to note the significance of biblical instruction. Now, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 17 begin like so many of the other commendations of good kings in Judah. And the good kings in Judah were compared to one man from history, and that was the king David. 
And so here Jehoshaphat is commended, and it says that he walks in the way of his father David. That is just to say that Jehoshaphat was a good king. He did many of the similar things. That was moving, removing the bales and not following the practices of the northern kingdom who had gone after other gods. He had emphasized the, uh, the, the importance of personal obedience to the law of God. But then in verses 7 through 9, there is a unique contribution that stands out and is highlighted for us in the text. And so follow with me there. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials. We will not go back through the names of these officials again to save my own tongue. But then skip down to verse 9 as to what these officials did. They taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. And so while Jehoshaphat was a good king and that he promoted religious reform and did many things just in terms of his own personal piety, then this particular thing stands out inside of the entire passage as a unique reform that Jehoshaphat contributed inside of this awakening work of God, that he sent out these men to teach the law of the Lord, and they went through all the cities of Judah and did so. And friends, this is one of the shapes of awake, that awakening takes, is that when there is an awakening work of God and a renewing and reforming work of God, that there is an intense interest in biblical instruction as to what it means to learn from God's Word, that we gather to hear the voice of God that is in the Word of God through the Spirit of God. Because you see, when Jehoshaphat sends out the priests to teach the law of the Lord. He's not simply sending them out to teach the rules and the regulations. There is uh, sometimes a tendency when we hear the word law in the Bible to then think that that refers just to the rules and the regulations. But that's not exactly the case. The law of God is much broader than that in the Old Testament in particular. That when the law of God is being referenced in the Old Testament, it is not just referring to the rules and the regulations, but also to the statement of the redemption of God's people. Simply think back to where the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's the statement of redemption. And then you have the imperatives, the commands that follow, because God has redeemed. And so law is never simply uh, confined to rules and regulations. It involves the precepts of God and also the promises of God. It involves the grace of God and also the response of gratitude. And so these men go out teaching the covenant of God. That is how God relates to His people, the grace that has initiated them, and then the gratitude that is to rise up to Him in response. And friends, this is what we today in the midst of the awakening and renewing and reforming work of God, this is what we're asked to respond to, to have an intensive interest in biblical education, that we gather ourselves around the Word of God to hear it and to listen to God's voice and to be instructed and to be guided by it. That it's very simple, but in times of renewal and reformation, this is what's critical because we know that we cannot simply rely upon our past accomplishments. We can't say, well, I read the Bible one time through in an entire year, ten years ago. But our calling is to constantly sit under that Word and to hear and receive it, 
to receive it as if for the first time. Each time we hear it, responding with gratitude, responding in thanks, responding in conviction where we've been wrong. Asking God what it means to step forward in obedience after we've received it. That this is the vital work of awakening, is gathering ourselves in biblical instruction. And very practically, it's important for each one of us to consider what we're doing in order to gather around the Word of God, to hear the voice of God by the Spirit of God. And what are each of us doing this year? Because there are many different opportunities around you, and we want, we want to commend those to you, to take advantage of them, that you put yourself in places where you are hearing the voice of God, and you're putting your life into a community where you'll be assisted in applying it that this is crucial to the awakening work of God. And let's learn from Him. Let's appropriate it. Let's listen to it. But this is what we see inside of Jehoshaphat's reign. The second piece of this reforming and renewing work, though, is that during these times of awakening, it's crucial to evaluate our sources of security. That is simply to say that we have placed our trust in God, that we have believed in the gospel, that we've heard the good news of deliverance, but that we must always continue to evaluate where we find our confidence and what we put our trust in. Jehoshaphat is commended to us in chapter 17, and one of the particular commendations is that he strengthened himself, this is in verse 1, he strengthened himself against Israel. Israel was a dangerous place. These were the northern tribes that had gone apostate, and they were under the leadership of King Ahab, who was particularly wicked. But then chapter 18 begins to tell a new part of the story. Follow with me there in verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. After some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria. And Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him and induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. Marriage alliances were a common way of securing political alliances in the Old Testament. And so if you wanted to ally yourself politically so that you would have a friend in battle, you would oftentimes marry off a daughter or a son. And Jehoshaphat, despite all of his great success, the successes are enumerated in the second half of chapter 17, where God was strengthening the army, giving him everything that he needed, that God was granting him success upon success. And then we learn this very negative thing, that Jehoshaphat began to put his trust and security in this alliance with Ahab. This was something he didn't have permission to do. That he was to find his trust and his security in God and in God alone. That God was the one who had granted him all of these gifts. But he grows lazy. He becomes slothful. And he, prays, he places his security in this political alliance. Looking to this very compromised figure called Ahab. And so he gives his son in marriage. This will become very troublesome in the chapters ahead as we'll see. But one of the things that then happens inside of this alliance is he goes to visit Ahab. And verse 2 tells us that Ahab then induced him, or you could translate that seduced him, to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. And so Jehoshaphat was tempted 
He was induced to go into battle with Ahab. That is to take a further step inside of their alliance to actually take action. The word here for induced is a unique one. And as we've said, as we've seen, there are tight connections between the book of Chronicles and the book of Deuteronomy. And so if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13, in verse 6 is where we find this unique Hebrew word. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known. Now you see what the enticement here is. The enticement was if someone you know comes to you, no matter how close or intimate they are with you, if they attempt to entice you, and that is the unique word that we find in 2 Chronicles 18 as well, if they entice you to serve other gods, you were not to associate with them. And so Jehoshaphat is enticed by Ahab. He is drawn into this alliance. He has placed his security in something else, and the author of this has cleverly indicated that this was far more than just a political alliance. There was something far more sinister operating here, that he had entered into a covenant and into a relationship that he was not to enter into. He had placed his source of confidence and his trust in something that he had no permission to do so that he had forsaken God in all of the midst of his success, and he was finding his security outside. And so then prophets were called. Jehoshaphat was still very godly, and he was oriented to seeking God. And so he had listened to all the prophets. You find this in chapter 18. He listened to all the prophets of Ahab. And they had some wonderful uh, sermon illustrations where they brought in their horns and said, Ahab, you're going to gore the enemy. Jehoshaphat still had some good sense. He still thought that perhaps these men were false prophets. And he said, is there a prophet of the word of the Lord that can be found? And so Micaiah was brought in, and he said this was going to be disastrous. And friends, this is what happens to us, though, when we begin to place our security in something other than God and his promise and his word. And when we, find, when we tend to find our confidence somewhere other than in him, that once we've, entered, we've uh, gone down that road, it becomes perilous because the prophet speaks very clearly, this is going to be disastrous. But yet, Jehoshaphat still goes out to war. And people ask, why? Why did he still go out to war? He asked for the prophet and the prophet told him and he still disobeyed. And friends, because it's when we find our security in something other than God, other than his promises, we will then find ourselves in further and further compromise. It will lead to a series of complications. And for Jehoshaphat, that's precisely what happens. He got compromised with Ahab, and then it leads to further and further compromise, where he hears the word of God that he asked for very plainly and then turns his back because it's inconvenient. He didn't want to offend Ahab. He didn't want to deny the marriage alliance. It simply wasn't going to work. It was infeasible for him. And friends, this is what happens to us as well. And we have to guard very carefully what we place our confidence in. And so very practically, we need to ask ourselves those questions. What is it that makes us feel secure? What is it that can become our trust other than God's promise? What do we place our confidence in? 
that bolsters us? Is it our relationships that are around us? Is it our family? Is it our bank account? Is it the stock market? Is it who is occupying the White House? There are all kinds of things that we can find to buoy ourselves, to make us feel confident. And absolutely every one of them will fail you every time. But it is the promise of God that he would be our defender, that he would be our help, that he would be our shield, that in Jesus Christ he's faithful to us that he's working everything together for our good, this is to be our security, and this is to direct us. And so this is the second thing that we learn from Jehoshaphat in the midst of this awakening, is guarding our sources of trust and security. The third piece to this is that when we do fail, we recover through repentance. Jehoshaphat is commended to us, but that does not mean that every part of his life is commendable. He goes out to war with Ahab, and then Ahab, because he was such a treacherous fellow, he betrays him. He says, I want you to wear your battle regalia, and I'm going to dress like a common and ordinary soldier. And so then the attention of the armies that they are fighting focus on Jehoshaphat. He finds himself in trouble because the the armies they were fighting wanted to kill Ahab. And so then In verse 31, though, we find the response. As soon as the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. It's very simple. But the most profound verses in the whole narrative about Jehoshaphat's reign He cried out to God from the midst of his distress. And then what does God do? After Jehoshaphat has completely blown it, he has basically apostatized, that he has brought into his house and into his home and into his political court this religiously compromised man named Ahab whose wickedness was well known. He has called him a friend and loved him politically. That now, from the midst of all that, after he is betrayed and when he is in his distress, he calls out to God, and God graciously delivers him. And friends, this is one of the most important things for us to recognize. That in times of awakening and renewing and revival, it doesn't mean that sin just disappears. It doesn't mean that your failures just don't happen. It doesn't mean that my unfaithfulness doesn't take place. What it means is that we have a gracious God who always stands ready in Jesus Christ to forgive us. When we turn to him and we cry out for help, when we acknowledge our need, when we acknowledge that we've messed it up, when we acknowledge our faults and failures and all of our shortcomings, and then what God does is fairly marvelous. It says in the passage in 31 that God drew them away from him. This is that same word that we read from Deuteronomy 13. It's the same word that we read from chapter 18, verse 2. That what God does is he induces the armies away from Jehoshaphat and he protects him. And this is the writer of the book of Chronicles, who we don't know by name, making the profound point that God undid what Jehoshaphat had done. That in his wrongs, when Jehoshaphat repented, God undid that inducement. And he induced the armies of judgment away from him. 
And this is what your God does for you on your behalf through Jesus Christ. When we turn to him and ask for help, he'll be our defender and our shield. He'll be our refuge. That he is the one who atones for our sins. When we call out to him, when we ask for the resources that are infinite and never-ending, that he's eternally rich and will apply those to us. And so, friends, when you find yourself having blown it, when you find yourself falling short of what God's claim is on your life, and you find yourself disappointed, you can sulk in that, and you can experience all the shame of that. But that's not what God wants for you. What He wants is simply to turn, and you cry out for help, and He's there to relieve you. We recover through repentance in the midst of failure. The final piece that we learn here from Jehoshaphat, is that after failure, we pick up and we pursue new obedience. Chapter 19 is a wonderful account of Jehoshaphat's renewed obedience. After this massive failure in which he's induced by Ahab to go into war and battle, in which he compromises himself in that way, finds a source of security outside of God, but then he cries out to God for help. God induces the troops away from him, delivers him. He goes back to Jerusalem. He's actually confronted by the prophet who says, why in the world did you do that? But you know what? Jehoshaphat was not paralyzed by his failure. He didn't sulk in his shame. He also didn't grow proud and strong again. But rather what Jehoshaphat does is he sets out on a trail pursuing new obedience. And friends, this is the simple path that we're to follow inside of the awakening grace of God. That after our failures and after repenting and turning, that we rise to simply serve Him once again. That we don't have to feel like there is a scarlet letter A on our chest that marks us out and delineates us from everyone else. That we failed in some too massive way. Because, yes, we can transgress the boundaries of God's law. We can go outside of what God wants for us. But we cannot transgress the boundaries of God's grace. Grace will pursue you past that boundary of your breaking, that you can't outsend the grace of God, that God will renew you, and that He will then guide and teach you. The psalmist says it like this, that we're not to be like horse and mule that need bit and bridle but rather we're to become supple and teachable when we've been forgiven from God. If you turn with me to Psalm 25, it illustrates this shape of the gospel so perfectly for us. As you follow in verses 6 through 9, this is one of David's prayers. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. This is David crying out to God for mercy. Don't remember the sins that I've committed. Don't remember my present sins. Remember me according to your mercy. And then verse 8 shows us the turn. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. And he teaches the humble his way. And friends, this is the shape of Jehoshaphat's life. That forgiven by God, after he repented, he is humbled and he's instructed by God and he's led in the way. 
And what Jehoshaphat specifically does is that he begins to gather the people from Israel, from that compromised kingdom. He gathers them back into the house of Judah. He has an evangelistic mission of sorts, you could say. And then he appoints judges who were to apply the Word of God to the people. These were somewhat like um, judges as as they would operate today, but they were also those who gave instruction to the people. And so he presses further into the cause of reform. And friends, that's what the grace of God does with us when we're broken and humbled and taken down to the dust, is it reforms us and renews us that we pursue then new obedience. We don't do so boastfully and self-confidently. We do so under the grace of God, knowing how good and kind He is to us and that we don't deserve it. And then we seek out to serve Him. We set out to serve Him with a renewed sense of zeal because of the goodness of God. This is what times of awakening look like. There's moral complication with Jehoshaphat. There's moral complication with you. There's moral complication with all of us. We're all a mixture of truth and error, of faults and failures, of faithfulness and wrong. This is all of us. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't work in and through us and with us. And this is the profound message of the book of Chronicles for us that the grace of God goes over, it goes against, it goes beyond, that it is this powerful and it continues to awaken and enliven us as we follow its course and its way. And so let's pray and let's ask God's help in that direction. And Father, we do gather and we give thanks this morning for your grace that directs and guides us through all seasons of life, and we confess our own complication that we too are full of failure and faithfulness, that we easily vacillate between compromise and obedience. And Lord, in the midst of that, we ask that you would teach us to repent, to look to Jesus Christ, to know the great forgiveness of sins, and then to be instructed and taught by you in the way that's right. May we learn from Jehoshaphat what it is to live in times of awakening and renewing and to not fight against uh, your grace that comes to us. And Lord, we thank you this morning for the privilege it is to pray that you hear us as sons and daughters who are gathered together to make supplications to you, to ask for your grace to fill your world, that your name would be known, that healing would be had, that all things would be made right and renewed. And so we ask you in your mercy to hear us this morning as we pray. And let's join our hearts together in silent prayer for the following concerns.